welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Gimp. Now that guy knows at the party. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by G-Men World War. Made with actual superheroes, take the A-Train to victory in G-Men World War. Now playing in a theater near you. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes... And I am Todd. And we're back. We're, we're doing the thing again. Um, we are filmmakers, writers, actors, directors. Uh, we do all kinds of things, uh, music, and we use all that info insight to try to deconstruct films in a way that helps you understand the whole filmmaking process. Maybe you're an artist and uh, you like to hear different ways of attacking a problem or a story or a creative idea, creative approach. I have, I always think it's funny. I mean, we have a, our audience is mostly artists. I feel, I feel like um, there's probably a, a handful of people who just enjoy hearing kind of shop talk. Uh, but we re- really do have a lot of creatives, but not just filmmakers. Like we have actual artists um, like painters and other people who are talented and behind the camera with photography. And yeah, I, I just really uh, music. We have, you know, a lot of musicians who listen in. And so it's really interesting. I think just the ways that we find inspiration to carry into our own work. Um, some people do marketing. I, yeah, I find as a writer and director, like I find a lot of inspiration outside of film. Like it's hard for me to watch a film without doing what we do every episode of just kind of trying to see under the hood. And so whenever I need to get inspiration, I might turn to books uh, or video games. Um, and for me, that's like I get to consume a story without thinking about necessarily all the ways that the story is operating and all the way that the cinematography is playing into it. Right. I'm never going to write a novel. So picking up whatever Joyce, uh, not that I've read Joyce, but I could, you know, you know, Herman Melville and really dive into it, find inspiration in the story and some of the themes um, without feeling like, oh, I see he's setting up this chapter by doing X, Y, Z, or uh, that was a thesis statement that's going to come back, you know, right around uh, the midpoint or whatever. Like, I don't have any of those problems. I don't know. Where do you, as a musician um, and as a producer, are you finding inspiration outside of your actual zone of what you're doing? I mean, yeah, I think that's because with pretty much all forms of art, I can't think of any off the top of my head that wouldn't apply to this, but they extend be good art extends beyond its own medium, right? So I don't just listen to music to get inspiration to write music or vice versa. I mean, when I watched the, when I watched the whale, I was inspired to come home and make a piece of music. And I did that. And that was from a film. You know, but the inspiration didn't come from the music from the film. It just came from the the feelings that I had watching this and and what I felt like I wanted to do. Like I wanted to do something. And when I want to do something, usually it's sit down and and work on music, but not always, not always. So, yeah, I, I think the best art and the best um, ideas come from when when you're able to like be present and notice what's around you, right? Because uh, there's so much around you. And I think that I'm a really, I'm a bad culprit of this where I'll just go through my day because I have so much I'm doing. I'll just go through my whole day. And then at the end of the day, I'll, I'll look up and think, what what just happened? You know, the day is gone. And I, I 
it's like when you're driving from point A to point B and you don't realize how you got to point B. Well, you're almost on autopilot and that's going to happen to us all. We can't focus on everything we're doing all the time. Just like you can't focus on on the way your clothes feel because your brain would just go crazy. You know, it shuts things off. But it's you got to remind yourself, like, be present in that moment. Like, oh, what did she just say? Oh, that's a cool word. That's a cool phrase. You know, maybe maybe I should write that down. Remember that or or oh, that's an interesting idea that that. You know, he just ran in that direction and this happened and, oh, interesting. You know, but if you don't look up, then you you, you miss it. So, yeah, I get in, I try to get inspiration all the time, but, you know, I also have a lot going on and I, I, I have to remind myself to come back down to earth and, and notice it. You know what I mean? It's all yeah, around us. It is. It is hard to come down sometimes from the inane somewhat, right? Like driving to yeah. and from work or doing the dishes, whatever. And I feel like some cultures probably do a really good job of using those kind of actions as a meditation. And like, it's like, okay, just because I'm not enjoying this doesn't mean I can't get anything out of it. It's like, you know, the shower effect where if you let your senses become uh, dulled, your mind can really go to new places and interesting places. And there's inspiration there too. Yeah. And I think for me, a lot of it is, also trying to be disciplined enough whenever I'm having those moments to recognize what is it inspiring. If I can get that down somewhere, whether it's on paper or lock it into some story in my head that I can then chew on for the next few months or just sometimes like as an actor, I I'm always trying to understand what did that feel like just now? I, I just got hit with an emotion. What happened inside my body? Like if you want to uh, cry on, on, on screen, that's really hard and if, without going to some mechanical tricks, right? The whole don't close your eyes, um, pinch yourself, whatever, those kind of things. Um, the, the Joey uh, method of tweezers in, the, in your pocket, uh, <laughs> just start pulling. Um, <laughs> and instead, like if you can understand some of the physiological things that happens in your body when you're experiencing something, uh, like crying, um, your breath shortens, it's in your chest and you can start to, uh, reverse engineer these things so that whenever you need to call upon them as an actor, you can trigger those things because you understand those, your emotions are tied to your physicality. Um, and if the more you can understand what's happening in your body, the more you can recreate the external emotions by first triggering what's happening in, in your body on purpose, you know, on purpose. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And so there's inspirations everywhere. Like if you, yeah, if you're mindful and I'm as 100% as guilty as anyone else about the going from A to B and like what just happened, like uh, time warp. Yeah. But life can move really, really fast if you don't sit and actually, I mean, to Bueller it a little bit, if you don't look around every once in a while, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, what piece of life are we looking at today, man? Yeah. So today we're, we're, uh, talking about the whale, uh, Brendan Fraser's, uh, comeback performance. Um, if you haven't seen this film, please pause the episode and go watch it. Uh, it might still be in theaters wherever you are. It might not be. Hopefully, um, you'll be able to to uh, rent it or, or stream it soon uh, if it's not. But uh, but yeah, uh, we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. For sure. I don't have a ton on my plate, but I definitely want to look at some of the cinematography, the way they use the aspect ratio, and then also look at some of the directing, 
acting performances, a little bit of the writing. I happened to, I wasn't sure we were going to do this one. And so every time something popped up on my podcast feed, I listened to it. And so I'll try to recall the stuff I've heard Darren Aronofsky talk about, as well as Samuel D. Hunter, um, who wrote the play and the screenplay. And they had some really interesting insights about what they were thinking while they were creating this. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to remember what I learned from those guys and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. A reclusive, morbidly obese English teacher attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter. Directed by Darren Aronofsky, written by Samuel D. Hunter, cinematography by Matthew Libatique, uh, featuring Brendan Fraser as Charlie, Sadie Sink as Ellie, Hong Chow as Liz, Ty Simpkins as Thomas, and Samantha Morton as Mary. She saved him. She wasn't trying to hurt him. She was trying to help him. Who are you talking about? He's going home. She did that. Charlie. She didn't do it to hurt him. She did it to send him home. Do you feel lightheaded, Charlie? Look at me. She's trying to help him. Who? Ellie. She was trying to help him. She just wanted to send him home. Do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring? People are amazing. All right. Um, and go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm shredded already. I know. How'd it hit you? Like, did you go in just blank slate and let it wash over you? Uh, how? What was your experience in the theater? Yeah, so I was the only one in the theater. There's no one else there. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I caught the literally the last showing. You know, like I told Jenny, I I'm sorry, I gotta go to the movies tonight. <laughs> um, and uh, caught the last showing. I was the only one in the theater, and yeah, it. It was it, it was intensely simple and beautiful. And I mean, it's pretty much one location, you know, the entire time. And the way it starts is fantastic. Just the, the opening scene is just brutal. It's the first time where <laughs> it's also the first time when um, I, I, I couldn't finish my popcorn. <laughs> I like literally had to stop eating. I was like, I can't I can't do this. <laughs> I can't while I'm watching him yeah. basically kill himself, you know, um, I, so I thought it was come back to that later. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I, I expected a great performance from him just because of all the, the news and the hubbub and everything about, you know, around, around that. Um, but I didn't have any idea what the story was, you know, the reference to the whale, like why it's called the whale. I mean, it's obviously, you know, morbidly obese guy, but, but does, is that referencing him? Is that referencing actual whale and obviously you know there's the moby dick reference but i i also wondered like the the thing i was curious about was in that scene specifically you know where he says where he says you know do you ever wonder you know if people are incapable of of not caring you know in the in the in the previews that never hit me like it, it 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 felt it almost felt contrived a little bit in the previews because i was thinking okay like what is he just like a 
you know, a guy that life has, has crushed and yet he's like Job and he just takes it, mm. you know, like, I hope not. Yeah. I hope not. Cause then that, I don't, I don't like guys like that. Yeah. Like that. I don't, I can't just getting rolled relate. Over. Yeah. I can't relate to people like that. And, and so I was nervous that, is it going to be one of those? And I, I just, you know, whatever. But then, you know, no, you realize like he wasn't always like this and, and he's doing this to himself on purpose. Obviously, I mean, yes, there's times where he's questioning doing it and he tries to stop, but it's it's just in passing, you know. And so to me, it was fantastically executed. I, I, I felt like, um, well, first off, let me just address Brendan's performance. I thought it was, I mean, fantastic. Oscar caliber, you know, I, I absolutely think that that you could tell he did research you could tell that he gave a hundred percent you could tell that that you know in those scenes where he's trying to stand up that i mean i don't know i i'll I'll say i don't know what it's like to try to stand up as you know a 600 pound person but i could tell that that looked very real his struggle and that when he would fall or slip or something like that, it looked like he really hurt himself. Like it, it was flawlessly executed um, from an acting standpoint, but also from a cinematography standpoint. I thought the angles were really, really great and important. Um, these, uh, these moments of any, like they did a good job of like putting him in these moments that would be very simple for you or I, the key falling on the ground, you know, to, to work out. But for him, that's a huge deal, you know, putting him in those situations and he can't fit through the door to get into his partner's old room. Uh, you know, like these situations that limit him, even though he's right there, he's right at the cusp, but he can't do it. Right. Uh, which, which is important because then in his decision to continue doing that, right. Shows what most of the time, any story would be frustrating in this case, beautiful, right? The only thing he can do for his daughter is this, right? Is what he thinks. And so, which I disagree with, but it's what he, what he thinks. And that's his, his way out and his way back into her life in some form or fashion, even if it's after he's passed. That is beautiful. What's, what's her name? Um, uh, Hong Chow. Oh yeah. Liz. Yeah. Is, is com- like, she was not acting. I will just say that. Like she was, she was fantastic. She was probably other than Brendan Fraser, my favorite part of this film. Wow. You know, I just loved her anger and her frustration and her hurt when she found out that he actually has money and, and, and kept coming back even after that. Cause what are you going to do? You love somebody you really do. And you know that they're dying. You're, you're not going to stay away no matter what, you know? I thought that the writing was strong to bring her back and to, even if she didn't forgive him, it didn't matter if she forgave him or not. She was there. And I, she's just fantastically strong in this film. I thought that I honestly was not crazy about Sadie's performance. I don't think that it was bad. Mm-hmm. I just felt very like a little bit like how I felt with her in um, uh, Stranger Things. She just had... It's it's the same role. 
she's just this angry teenager and in some cases all over the place too much right i felt like she was overacting honestly yeah. and i and which sucks because i think she's a great actress and i think that if she were to just pull it back a little bit it would be so much more believable you know um i don't know if that's because she was directed to do that or if that's just how she is because i feel like that might be just how she is because that's how she was in in stranger things but but I don't know. I was able to look past that because yeah. she wasn't on screen a lot. Like it wasn't like all about her. It was mostly mm-hmm. about Brendan. Uh, so anyway, but yes, I thought it was fantastically beautiful and the way that it ended was so beautiful. And, um, you know, I mean, my wife is an English teacher, so his love of, of truth and honesty and, and I mean, you know, you, you, it could be about writing. It could be just about creative creativity in general which is kind of how I took it as creativity in general and being honest, which is why after it, I came home and, and I, I just had to sit down and write something. And so I wrote this thing and it felt really good because it's the first thing I wrote since, since recording the album. And, um, I didn't give, I didn't give a shit, you know, like if, if it was good or if anybody liked it, I was going to make something and I was going to put it out. And, and it just felt really good and honest. And I think that that film helped me. It was what I needed in that moment to say, to remind me, like, just, just create, just turn mm-hmm. off your brain and make something real and honest. And don't make it because you think that people will like it or that even you will like it. Just do something. And um, it's like super inspiring, which is which is great. Uh, and it, hopefully that's the reason that's like the purpose of it is to remind people that like, be real, be honest. Don't do something because you think I want to, you don't make something cause you think I want to hear it or see it. You know? I mean, yep. I think that all the best filmmakers are like that. They make films for themselves first because they're the love, the film lover first. And then hopefully other people like it. Yes. You want everybody to love it. Of course. I don't care who you are. You want everybody to love it, but you can't make stuff for other people. You have to make it for yourself. Moby Dick was not written for you and me. <laughs> it was definitely not. And there's probably a hundred pages that say that, you know? So yeah. Anyway, I thought it was brilliant. It was wonderfully done. If he wins uh, an Oscar, it's very well deserved. I love his comeback story. Um, he's such a, like a wonderful person. He seems like a wonderful person um, and deserving and yeah, it's a great film. Great film for him. I'm glad that he had this opportunity, you know, so. Same. He he was saying, Aronofsky was saying that he, he had been trying to get this produced for, I don't know, eight, ten years, something like that. And oh my God, got close a couple of times and then uh, just couldn't find the right actor for it. And he uh, saw Brendan in uh, some show. I already forgot what show it is. Um, I haven't seen it. And he was like, oh, man, Brendan Fraser. Yeah, you know what? Uh, and I think they just had a conversation about it, and he was gung ho. And I agree, man. Like, definitely wouldn't mind seeing him pick up a statue. Worth it. And yeah, you know, I walked into this. Uh, I just go see all of Aronofsky's films, whether or not I'm excited about it. Like, I was not excited about Mother, but went to see it nonetheless. And it was a weird experience because I realized very quickly he didn't write this. Like I could just hear the way everyone was talking and I was like, this does not sound like an Aronofsky script. Um, and so part of me, you know, five, 10 minutes in 
just began to anticipate the credits. <laughs> I was like, I need to have this confirmed or I'm crazy. One of the two is happening right now. Oh, so you didn't know that he didn't write it. I going had in. no idea. Okay. I, okay. because he writes and directs all his own stuff. Like I, yeah. I don't think he's ever directed someone else's script before to my knowledge anyway. And so I just kept waiting, you know, to see like, okay. And, and then the other thing I realized about 10 minutes in, I was like, Oh, this is a play. Um, this feels like a play. It's being treated like a play. This is an adapted play. And that's why. So maybe, maybe he adapted someone else's screenplay, but I just don't think he would write this way. The dialogue is very not Aronofsky and I couldn't define what that even is, but it's uh, the old adage. I'll know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, it was really interesting just to watch him directing someone else's uh, uh, words and, and screen and you could feel the staginess of it. And I think that was a good part of why Sadie Sink felt out of sync. Um, sorry, no pun, really not. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> She just really, yeah, felt off a lot of the, a lot of the time, the times when she felt amazing, she looked like she was pulling everyone in was those moments when she was still. And those I loved, I really loved watching her yes. watch him. Yes. You just start to imagine all these feelings that you have as a daughter watching your father uh, having turned into this when, while he's been away, he's been out of sight for a few years and now suddenly he's this, how is she processing that? And all these emotions and feelings are happening just while she's sitting still. And it felt like every time she moved, it didn't feel like she had to move. It felt like she moved because she wanted to move. And those are two different experiences on, 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 on the screen. And or like you might, if it, you might, if it was on a stage. Yes. Right. You know what I mean? Cause you need movement and stuff to interaction, but in a film, not necessarily. So no, yeah, good point. Yeah. Move whenever your character has to absolutely move and not a second before. Don't talk until your character absolutely has to speak as opposed to, you know, um, Liz Hong Chao, who early, I would say like her first few, her first scene or two, I was still on that same page of, I'm not buying her. And then she settled in and she destroyed me. <laughs> like she has that monologue where she tells Thomas, like, actually don't go yet. You and I need to have a talk. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he tries to leave a few minutes later. She's like, nope, not yet. We're going to have that talk. Uh, and then she finally pulls him outside and she gives him the monologue about what happened to her brother and, and the exposition of why everything is happening the way it's happening. And suddenly I'm shredded. I'm like, Oh my God, Thomas, you need to crawl into a hole right now, buddy. Cause yeah. Yeah. she is handing you your ass. Um, and he does a great job of like responding to that for sure. And yeah, from that moment on, Liz definitely had me just watching her in that, that scene, that soundbite we played, like that's half the reason I'm getting shredded, but obviously Brendan Fraser just going there uh, is the other half because whenever he he's talking and he's so not Joe, but he is this relentless optimist. Um, and his wife calls him out on that. Oh, still the optimist, but you buy it. You just believe this guy has been handed the worst and he is still going. He still believes in people. He still believes in his daughter, man. If that doesn't like, pull you apart if you can watch this movie and not love uh charlie my god yeah. like i 
maybe there is no hope. <laughs> maybe yeah. if there's one person that isn't a sociopath that can watch this and not be absolutely moved. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we're doomed. Maybe that's that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yeah. what else, you know, to, to put in front of someone. Well, they do a good job of humanizing him too. And yeah. he's not just a dumb guy who's like, I'm just going to be happy and, and, and take it all the time. I mean, he gets mad at oh, Thomas is his name. Yeah, the, um, the the church boy. When Thomas, yeah, when Thomas uh, says something about you know his partner, you know that's why he you were sh- he died or whatever because he didn't accept Christ or something. He turned his back on God. That's why. God, yes, exactly. Yeah. He got really mad at him, and he attacked him verbally, and to show that, and I think that that was that was probably the most Im- one of the most important parts of the of the movie for me because it made me r- see. Charlie as an actual human being that anybody could be, even um, somebody who like loves all people and thinks that people are all good. You can, he can still get angry and he can still, he's allowed to be angry. He's allowed to express that anger in a way that hurts people. Right. Because up until then, you know, he's just this guy who's like, Oh, how could you not love Charlie? Well, he was kind of a shit bag. You know, he, at some point, like he left and yes, he has his his reasons and stuff. And he's like, well, I, I did send money and I sent more and I tried to contact you and stuff. Like, come on, he didn't try hard enough. Mm. You know, he, he could have tried harder. And he admits that. And he admits that he, but we never see that. We just yeah. hear him say all these things. So to actually see him hurt somebody else or to try to hurt somebody else, I think is like super important to humanize him. And it was it was kind of like a defining moment for him as a character to or, or a humanizing moment for him as a character that made me think that made me like really identify with him even more because now, OK, he's come back down to earth. He's not just this, you know, a pious, you know, guy right. who can who can do no wrong because I haven't seen him do any wrong. You know what I mean? Even if I've heard that he's done wrong. So I think that's a really, really great point, because it's easy to create this character that is all of one thing or or another like oh overweight people can be such a a punchline in films and throughout most of our lives uh that's what overweight people were it was something to point and laugh at and make a joke at their expense right oh i'm i'm setting this girl up with uh, a hot date and then you know this whatever uh, out of shape guy shows up and um, that's the definition of ugly now. Uh, and so it becomes very easy to uh, try mm-hmm. to swing this whole other direction where you make the perfect guy. He just happens to be morbidly obese and instead, no, let him defend himself. He has a perspective and yeah, just because he's really embraced this attitude of love, uh, which is a really great contrast because you have Thomas representing kind of uh, religion and uh, spirituality um, and who's trying to save Charlie's soul. And then you have Charlie um, who's actually embodying all those things. He's actually embodying, you know, grace and love and endurance. And he's the one who's really trying to save Charlie's soul, uh, Thomas's soul because Thomas is uh, uh, he's missing it. He doesn't really understand what all those things are. All he knows is how to follow someone else's path. Um, he doesn't know how to blaze his own trail um, that is really steeped in love um, and grace. And uh, and there's something interesting that happens between Thomas and Charlie, which is Thomas early on um, is trying to persuade Charlie, right? And um, he's like, but don't you see 
you know, if you, if you do this, if you believe, like, you'll get a new body made of light. Don't you want that? And, and at the end of the film, two things are true. One is that Charlie has not converted. The other thing is he does get his body of light. Like, that's that last <laughs> moment whenever he rises up and he's light as a feather and light engulfs him. Like, that's him, you know, finally finding uh, peace and rest. It's beautiful. Yeah. And, and death. <laughs> like, he dies. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, I, I love, can I just point please. out something that you said earlier that, that I never noticed and I think is, is also super important. You said grace and love and endurance. I, I did not look at it like that. And that is absolutely, I think maybe the best word you can use to describe his character and this film in general is just endurance in whatever that might be. Endurance just to get through life or endurance because you have a goal and you have to work towards that goal. I mean, there were moments in that film where, you know, he tried, he was like, I'm not going to eat this. But then his endurance was to eat it. He was purposefully doing that. And even when he felt like, I know I like I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it because his goal, he had set out for this to do this to himself since losing his partner, maybe even before that, you know, but it got really difficult for him to do it. And he knew he was hurting uh, Liz and he knew he was hurting his daughter and he and and and, and everything. But he wanted to do it. F- well, for her, for the money, but to give her the money, but also because he was wanted to to off himself. Like that's that's what I got. It. And it was interesting. I was having a conversation with with Jenny the next night. We went to dinner. We were talking about it. She's like, "Yeah, I was reading about it, and a lot of people are like upset with it because they're 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 it, they think that it's either it's like either glorifying gluttony or yeah, I know or um." Or just making the morbidly obese community look bad, right? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I squashed that. And I said, like, 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 you gotta, you gotta see this because he was doing this on purpose. Like, this is not something, it was, it was obvious. I mean, when he would eat, he went off in this whole other zone, you know, where he didn't hear anything. He didn't see anything. He was mm-hmm. just, and, and you could tell he didn't want to do it at times and he was forcing it down and, that's different than what she was describing. So I think it's maybe even just a, a one layer deeper than that. In that, let's go back to the popcorn. Um, you mm-hmm. put your popcorn down, and whenever I hear that, and this may not have been what it actually was, but I hear I'm trying to, I'm I'm doing my part to help him stop eating. Like if I'm eating, I'm I'm helping him eat. And I don't want to feel like I'm helping him eat. And I think the reason he began eating was as a compensation for his boyfriend um, or his husband. I don't know if it's clear, you know, what the relationship boyfriend because he said they weren't family. Okay. He couldn't go into the. That's yeah. right. Um, and so his his boyfriend starved himself to death, uh, you know, on the cusp of it anyway, before he jumped off the bridge. Uh, and so he was watching his boyfriend waste away and he was trying to compensate, um, by eating and like by, by feeding myself, I'm feeding him and I'm saving his life. I think there was just this emotional trigger that happened in him that 
began as uh, an emotional compulsion and then uh, to your point, maybe ended as I just can't stop now. Uh, this is the only way that I know how to move forward. And maybe it's one of those things where depression sometimes is more than just a, a thing you're suffering from. It's something you're holding on to as a last thread that's connecting you to something else, an event, a person. And the moment that you let your depression go means that you're now moved on from this thing. Like, and that's hard to do. It's so Sometimes. hard to do. And so for him to have stopped eating would have been a thread cut between him and his boyfriend. And so I think it was that. It was, I'm going to endure this so that I can still feel connected to him. Um, Great point. And that's my read on it. I mean, there's probably a thousand, you know, different layers you can, you can view it through, but as good as any, maybe. Yeah. I, yeah, this thing, this whole thing, you know, shredded me in so many scenes. There's that very, very simple scene early on, maybe the uh, first day or the second day where Liz comes over. Oh man, that first time she comes over and they have that whole conversation. She's checking his heart before we know who she is at first. It's like, okay, she like, a visiting nurse, like, you know, you had these traveling nurses that uh, do their jobs, you know, remotely. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, something else happens where he, he just gives her a look and she, you don't know what's happening yet. It's just as he shoots her a look. She kind of looks down and she kind of nods and she walks over to the kitchen, picks up this massive bucket of uh, fried chicken. She hands it to him. So much happens right there because um, I'm judging her. I think that's kind of the point is to, um, you know, trigger the audience a little bit into our own judgments and, and saying, what are you doing? And then, you know, it only takes me a few seconds anyway for I'm like, at the end of the day, it's his life. Like if that's what he wants to do, uh, why should she like restrain him and, and force him to save his life? Which I think is echoed later in the film, whenever she and him are talking and she tells him, I don't think anyone can save anyone. And I think that's true. I don't think anyone can save anyone. Um, if someone does something that hurts themselves, it's not your fault. Like, of course, there's always something you could do. There's something you could try. But ultimately, it's up to ourselves to help ourselves and to ask for help if we need help. Um, and the best that we can do is be there for them when they need that. And what is she going to do? Like, tell him something he doesn't think? Tell him something he doesn't know? Hey, your, your weight is causing you uh, uh, to kill yourself. Yeah, I, I'm aware. Can I have my chicken now? <laughs> like, what are you yeah. supposed to do? And so I think, you know, she's doing the best that she can by making him aware through her medical expertise, as well as loving him. You know, that's the only other thing that can possibly help him at this point is, is to love him. Or at least that's one perspective. I don't know. Maybe some people really need a kick in the ass. Um, and I, I, I just think at this point, she's already tried that. I think she's already mm. gone that road. She's also seen exactly that same scenario because Liz is coming from the pers perspective of not just watching Charlie do this to himself, but she watched Alan, her brother, do this to himself. So if anyone's in a position to kind of make that judgment between these two people in their lives, it's going to be Liz. Uh, yeah. And so for her to say that at that point is like, okay, yeah, you know what? You've probably earned the right to say that um, as much as anyone can. And so, yeah, that, and then you see him start to choke on uh, the, the sub meatball sub. And she's over here having a conversation with him, laughing, joking. And then she turns around and she sees him about to, you know, freaking die. 
And that becomes this heart stopping moment. I just, one of the things I really love about this film is they don't shy away from the eating. I think it's, it would be very easy to have someone like that on screen, but never really show them indulging. It would be dishonest to be a 600 pound person. You eat. There is no other way for that to take place. Uh, you're consuming more calories, um, or at least you've, you've reached a equilibrium of calories to maintain that. And you can't show that kind of, you know, uh, idea on screen without actually allowing them to indulge um, and also see them conflicted with it. Like you said, you see them stop, try to stop himself, you know, a few moments, he shuts the door on all the candy and then he continues. It's like, it's this wrestling match. Um, and I think that's worth sympathizing with. Yeah. I, and, but I appreciate the willingness to, to show it without making it disgusting. Like that was the other thing that I really, really appreciated. Like it would, a lot of other directors would be hacks when they approach this story by doing all the aggressive sounds and noises. And then I would have left the theater, to be honest. I don't care if it is Aronofsky. I would have left the theater because it just, it's, it's infuriating. Like I, I can't handle it, um, you know, physically. And so I really appreciate that. We watched him eat a number of times um, without turning it into this aggressive, let's aggravate the audience kind of approach. Instead, you know, we're just witnesses and that's it. And that's, that's okay. That's enough. Like, uh, for us to, you know, imbibe, but it also, to me, those moments of eating are very much tied into the idea of the whale. And I'll circle back to that in a second, but you made that comment and it's very perceptive on, which is, uh, the writer himself was talking about titling this. And this was on one of those podcasts I listened to. I'll link both of the the DGA podcast, uh, Director's Cut, with Aronofsky talking with Greta Gerwig um, about this movie. And as well as uh, another screenwriter on a, a Script Apart talking to Sam Samuel Hunter uh, about writing this thing. Both from the script, screenplay, uh, the, the play, and adapting it. Like, what did you add? How did you approach it, you know, differently from when you wrote the play? And he was talking about the title. He was like, how did you feel about making this the title? And he was like, originally, I didn't have it as a title. Um, I thought about it. Um, and then during some of my early writing process, as I was sharing it with my peers, uh, they challenged me to go there, to, to title it The Whale. Um, and I think part of that is pushing a button. It's making an audience think it's about one thing and channeling your preconceived judgments and biases. And then when you actually get in there, you realize, Oh, it's not actually a reference to his weight crap. Um, instead it's, yeah, it's about Moby Dick and obsession, right? Every time anyone is talking about Moby Dick, the, it's a reference to obsession, the white whale, and you're chasing something, not because it really is something you need to chase, but because you're obsessed with it. An obsession is uh, a very, you know, fatal, uh, and or maybe not. Sometimes it's good to be obsessed. Uh, that's how we get breakthroughs in technology and medicine or whatever. Um, and so it's not always a negative thing, but you know, often it's used as a negative metaphor because Moby Dick, uh, I don't <laughs> think, ends very well for 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 anyone. Um, and I so, think obsession is generally good for society and yet and bad for the individual. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh. That's yeah, we get breakthroughs, but that person has no life. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> 
and so the whale was very you know purposeful and and it's titling to to get at a bunch of different things yeah very smart but then the way it's used in the film itself i thought was interesting because uh the essay that she wrote it was interesting as a first scene to have this guy about to die and he's he says read this to me and we're like, what is this? Is it going to be like the code to the nuclear launch <laughs> or yeah. what? And he starts reading an essay about Moby Dick and he's, our confusion is right on his face, right? He's like, what, what is this? What am I doing? Just read. And the urgency is so clear that you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Just read, just shut up and read. I don't know why it'll all make sense at some point. And it doesn't, it never makes sense until much later in the film, whenever you realize this is what Ellie wrote. And this is his connection to her because he's an English teacher and he loves that. She wrote something so observant and honest. And the part that they repeat, I think the most is what she says, uh, especially the boring parts, because I knew the author was just trying to save us from his own sad story, if only for a little while. And I think that's what's happening in his eating moments. I think they're channeling that same idea. This is kind of a boring moment. We're just watching someone eat, but they're trying to save us from his sad story by making us watch it. Whether that's, you know, a more literal sense of be conscious of how we live our lives or if it's more on a, a, a you know s- similar sense of Moby Dick and that if we're watching him eat, then we're not watching him tear himself apart in all the other ways with all those other relationships. Um, it's a it's almost a reprieve from the moment he's dying, because if he if he's eating, yes, it's killing him, but he's not actually dead. He's active. He's doing something. So there's a lot of interesting ways that you can parse uh, her essay with what's happening with him on screen. Uh, that I found just really, really cool and um, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my my other notes around cinematography were the aspect ratio. It's a 4-3. It's a box, right? Um, it's not mm-hmm. literally like a 1-1 perfect square. I think they found that creating a perfect square is actually very uncomfortable for the viewer. Uh, whereas yeah. making it just slightly wider, it still feels like a square, but... It, that's fine. <laughs> you're, you're okay. Um, I don't want to watch an Instagram movie. Okay? <laughs> right. And yeah. so uh, one of the things that I think is happening is um, it helps Charlie fill the frame, right? Whether that's in the close-ups or when he's standing more vertical, uh, you can get his entire body in the shot without a lot of extra visual noise. And that I think also helps with the drama, right? Being tighter on someone's face, helps read the character's emotions by removing all that extra visual noise as well. It narrows our focus almost in the same way that the actual depth of field can help direct your attention. Well, if there's nowhere else to look, you're now being forced to watch this thing and you're going to be forced into their emotions as well. Uh, I think that's really beautiful. I think on another practical level, uh, it's easier to film in a very tight space whenever you're this tight uh, because it makes it easier to film in all these spaces by keeping it visually interesting. You can break up the character spaces a little easier if you know it's more narrow, as opposed to something like um, the Hateful Eight, right? It's ultra wide, but you also have all these characters that can fill up the frame, and you want to see where they are in relation to each other, in relation to uh, this this one room that we're all inhabiting. As opposed to here, we got like two characters. In a scene, we don't want necessarily to see these two characters in the same frame unless we really want them in the same frame. 
and by narrowing your focus or narrowing the frame, it makes it way easier. Now we can just kind of sit in their frame and we can separate them emotionally as well as, you know, visually, those are two in the same. And whenever we move around the apartment, we're not accidentally catching characters uh, that we don't want in there. And so it just turns this little box into a much bigger space by showing less of it at any one point in time. Uh, it's a really smart use of aspect ratio. And if I was going to do a, a, a one room shoot, I would be studying this with a handful of others, but I know they built the set. That was one of the things I picked up on in the podcast. I, I would not have assumed that this was a built set. Um, I mean, it makes sense because you know, if you, if you have a few million and this is where you're spending 99% of your time, yeah, build it. Now you can fly things in and out and get two of the impossible spaces uh, and control all the lighting. You can shoot at any time of day and the lighting is all perfectly consistent. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, if you have the budget, I would not. Um, but I still think there's a lot you can take from it. The, another film I would study is uh, Compliance. I think they did a masterful job of uh, uh, shooting in a tight space because Compliance takes place basically in a closet. Like you're effectively and like a maybe a 10 by 10 space for the almost the entire film um just really really masterful cinematography there uh the other thing i noticed in this is the lights really good use of temperatures like you have the lamp that's lighting him for the most part you have the, the kitchen uh fluoro i think or maybe there's another lamp in there i thought it was a fluoro um you have the tv casting light you have the window lighting that's this bluish and so they have a nice variety of temperatures uh, to create visual interest in a closed space it also helps break up the space a lot so that mm. if you just had this one main ambient light the space feels a lot smaller whereas if you have one light the lamp lighting up the couch then you have another lamp or something lighting up the bookcase suddenly those feel like two different complete you know spaces and now we can move around that that main room a lot easier because it's broken up with the lighting itself uh, and so in a number of ways they were just very smart and libatique is like uh, he's one of those greats that people the average everyone knows about deacons a lot of people know about like wally fister or whoever some of these other dps uh libatique is he's he's a g he's been around um and if you go through his uh his library uh you'll you'll see a lot of films that you've you've watched yeah so that's uh, that's all i got on cinematography um yeah i don't know man i think the other thing i couldn't quite nail down was the opening sentences where he's in his classroom and he says to his his students he says um I know these rules can feel constraining. The point is to be persuasive. And when it comes to that part, I don't know what I'm being persuading on. Like if we take that as a, a, a thesis statement or some kind of thematic uh, statement, I don't really know what necessarily all that is. I know I would think the constraints feel that we're locked in this room with, uh, with all these people, but I don't know what I would necessarily be persuaded on other than like, everyone is a person oh the other thing i guess uh from the the screenwriter he talks about things he added for the film that weren't in the play which is the pizza guy i thought the pizza guy was a really important role because we needed to see a little more judgment it's 
everyone entering this guy's life loved him for for who he is even though thomas finally admits that you know yes you disgust me he was still coming around he was still letting on that uh he was fine and okie dokie with everything we needed one really honest person to come in and kind of be the societal standard um that is a judgmental piece of shit and that was our pizza guy like it was really good to have him and so because he kept trying to show concern like is everything okay in there and hey man i'm dan or whoever um, and he seems like this really friendly guy until he catches a glimpse of charlie and then you can see all the judgment it's right there on his face you feel it on charlie it sends charlie into an episode where he just devours all this pizza um you know he's just emotionally devastated by feeling that judgment the entire reason he doesn't leave his well half the reason he doesn't leave his apartment and so having the pizza guy i thought was a really smart move uh i think that was directed by uh aronofsky uh if i recall correctly um but yeah i i thought that was just you think what was directed by aronofsky putting in the pizza guy i think aronofsky was oh, like let's okay. let's add something uh maybe a pizza guy or something uh, and hunter was like uh what i don't know if mm-hmm. we need, i don't know if i want to add anything um and then the more he started thinking about it he's like okay no maybe there is a function and i don't remember everything he said that's about that, but that's interesting so you know that for sure or you think that you i think that Aaron, that's a come yeah i i think that i think it was one of those like our runtime is still a little shallow let's flesh it out yeah. a little bit more who can we add that gives us a sense of timing throughout the week yeah i can't remember the exact conversation and why he ended up using the pizza guy versus something else. Um, that was just this vague memory that I have of that conversation. I want, I would, I would like to be, have been a fly on the wall for that debate. If it was mm. a debate, like that would be interesting of like, you know, the guy who wrote the story being confronted by the guy who's making the movie <laughs> saying we need to add something. And then his, because I'm sure he had the story for years before, before this how do you have a story for years and then somebody else comes in and says you need to add another character that's going to add seven minutes to the the runtime and you're like what the f are you what and 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 then if he was if he was uh, opposed to it at first what was his mentality how did he come around like what what was it that changed his mind or that made him realize yeah or 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 maybe it never changed his mind but but he did it anyway for the film but he does he didn't like it but he did any and why would he do it you know like i would like to be a fly on the wall for that that'd be interesting that would be uh that's one of those things that no one ever talks about uh i've i've mentioned this before with fincher like just because a director isn't writing the script doesn't mean they're not involved like they're not just handed the script and then say, okay, this is what I got to work with. No, they, they sit down with the screenwriter and they say, okay, um, this moment I don't feel like is, is landing the way we want it to. Cause there is a difference between what's, what's on the page versus what works on in the edit. Yeah. And there's so many times when something looks really good on the page and it just doesn't work in the edit. Like I ran into that on a recent short film where I was like, this works so well on the page. And then I got into the edit and I'm like, damn, I'm glad I gave myself an out because this does not work. It just does not (laughs) cut. Um, And luckily I I thought around that corner, but you do, there is this give and take. And then 
it's not uncommon either. Uh, and you'll hear a lot of screenwriters, you know, upset about this. Directors will take the script and rewrite it. They won't get credit. They'll just rewrite your work. And sometimes for the better, sometimes for the not. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm sure a lot of screenwriters will be like, never for the, you know, for the better. But sometimes it is. I mean, it just depends on everything, all the context, who it is that's doing it, what's the goal. But to some degree, at a certain point, you start to wonder, why did the director ever take the script if this is what they were going to do with it? Like, if they didn't want to make my script, mm -hmm. why did they buy it? Why are they, you know, signed on to do it? And I think a lot of times is, well, I got funding for it. And therefore, I want to make a movie. It doesn't matter. I, I will mm. turn it into something that I like, which often if the if the film landscape is any indication it often goes wrong <laughs> like, yeah um but yeah it, it it's a it's a tricky process and you know if if you're a good director you understand kind of pacing and why a scene works versus why it doesn't um and you can figure that out, stuff out either in rehearsal or you can just see it on the page i mean i can go yeah. into some scripts and see why something isn't working on the page and why it'll never work on set, let alone in the edit. And I could punch it up right there and be like, no, 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 no buddy, you, you don't want to do that. Um, and here's whatever five reasons why, uh, but that's taken a long time. That's taken a lot of trial and error on my part and also just flat out misreading. Uh, this is why I direct my own scripts. I, I don't direct other people's scripts because I can't see inside someone else's head on what they intended when they wrote a thing. Um, so it's very unlikely I could be as bold as Aronofsky and take someone else's script and direct it. Um, I'm still yeah. honestly shocked that he did. I'm grateful because I think this is a wonderful film. Um, if for no other reason than like you said, it gave Brendan Fraser a new life. Um, and yeah. I'm really hoping that we'll start seeing him in like Nolan films and Fincher. Like I just hope everyone's pulling him apart to get back to him because he, he deserves it. God, is he good? God, is he good? Yeah. Um, he's really, really good. He's really good. Uh, I want him to get that opportunity. You know, I mean, I, this is, this is an opportunity back, but it's not him back. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like now we need to do something completely different and then he's back. And then he's that's, back. that's the way I feel. I feel like, like a, a role can define you unless, I mean, Christian Bale is a great example of an, of an actor who can do something that you would normally think would pigeonhole them. And then doing something completely different to say, you know what? No, I can also do this. And, and I, that's what I want for Brendan. I think yeah. this is, this was such a transformational role for him that now no matter what he does is going to be different. So hopefully, hopefully it's, it's of the caliber. Like I don't, I don't want him to go do a Transformers movie. You know what I mean? Like I want him to go do like, I, I'd love, like you said, a Nolan film, you know, like if he was an Oppenheimer, the new Nolan film coming out, that'd be awesome and perfect. That's the kind of thing, you know, that I hope for him, something substantial, but completely different. Yeah. And it, to me, it should be a lesson to low budget filmmakers. Yes. There is a graveyard full of incredible talent. Some of them have been forgotten. Some have not been discovered. And if you don't have the budget to go get, you know, uh, Christian Bale, you might have the budget to go get someone that's looking for an opportunity 
you know, to resurrect their career. If you have the material, if you can write the material and get just enough money to, uh, to make it all work, you can probably make a splash at Sundance at Cannes because they're like, oh my God, like, um, where has this person been? Like we, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a, a, a character actor, you know, like Mark Rylance, um, who was just waiting to get their opportunity to shine. Like JK Simmons was playing all these supporting characters before he finally got whiplash. Uh, and then, you know, he was the freaking man. Like there's so yeah. many actors waiting, uh, to have a great script handed to them that finally features their talent. Um, and if you can assess talent, uh, it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that difficult to, mm-hmm. to go look through a handful of films and say, Oh, uh, who's been quiet lately? Fine. Let's. Let's uh, let's go ring their bell and give them. A- yeah, and and and, I, and to your point uh, about independent filmmakers, I think also don't worry about getting too complicated on the story, you know, and and because there's so many great stories that are just barely stories. Yeah, I mean, think about it, yeah. you know, like like I mean, two films in the last two years have had comeback actors, right? So who is the 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 kid from Indiana Jones in oh, um, key. Yeah. everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, you know, great comeback film for him, right? And everyone was watching that movie, thinking, "I know who that guy is. How do I know who that guy is?" I knew immediately, <laughs> immediately. But Jenny, when she was watching, she was like, "I know who that guy is." <laughs> that is an extremely complicated story with location, hundreds of locations, and 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 just all everything all over the place. Um, and this is a completely very simple story. I mean, like there's a lot that happens within, like, you know, if you dig down deep, but it's all in one setting and it's really relying on the acting of like just a couple of people, uh, or a few people. And so you can go one way and have it be this gigantic thing, but you can also go small. So if you have no budget that, but you know how to work a camera, and you know how to light a scene or you know what you don't like yeah. at least then you can make something and it doesn't have even have to be a feature it could be like something short but that says that says something okay what do you want to say okay say it in 5 minutes there get in get out you know if you have a a great it, like it just just look for a story look for like something to say and then you can do that it, you don't have to make the big thing just make yeah. something and then that will lead to making something else, which will lead to making something else. It's like if you go and work out, you will go, you go and work out hard for 90 minutes. You come home, look in the mirror, you see nothing. The next day you go and you work out hard for 90 minutes. You come home, you look in the mirror, you see nothing. The next day you see nothing. But at some point, and I don't, you know, it could be weeks, months there will be, you'll look in the mirror and you'll think, oh, something's happened. And that is not because you worked out for 90 minutes hard. It's because you did something every day. It's the consistency, not the effort. So just make stuff and, and stuff that like is interesting to you. Like don't, you know, make garbage that you just don't care about at the end of the day. But, and to your point, there's a lot of great talent out there. And it, it might be hard to find, but if you put your ear to the ground, you can find somebody that if the if you know you have a short script, you could go to them and say, "Hey, I have no money, but I have this great idea, 
and I think you'd be perfect for it. And I promise you, a lot of actors would be like, I'd be perfect for it. Oh, oh, so this is like basically for me. Okay, cool. And that is what they want. That is what a lot of actors want. They want something that is, you know, basically made for them that they think no one else could do better than them. Like this was, this is the role of my lifetime. Okay, cool. I don't care about how much money I make. They're artists too. You know, you, you're an artist with the camera. You're an artist with your pen. They're an artist with, with, you know, their, their ability with their acting. And so give them the opportunity, you know? Yeah. Huge. Anyway. Nice. Uh, yeah. I think that's just about it. the only other thing uh, that I can remember Aronofsky talking about. He talked about two things. One, he liked to shoot, shoot, shoot. Um, now I also prefer to be shooting instead of standing around fiddling with lights. Um, but I suspect my version of shoot, shoot, shoot is very different from Aronofsky's. Um, his version is probably very slow for me just because he's got a built set. Uh, and you know, he, he, whenever you need to fly out a wall, that's going to take, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Uh, you're just kind of hanging out, but it's still comforting to know that that's the way he, he, he thinks. And I think there is something to that, giving a flow to the actors, letting them, kind of create some momentum shoot shoot again run it again run it again um and then once you know you got it you can move on like i don't do coverage i i'm personally not a fan of coverage i i i don't know if he is i i wouldn't suspect that he's a coverage guy and coverage can you describe that can you define that for those who don't know coverage is whenever you're you're you have a list of shots that you get in order to cover the entire scene and sequence. And so it usually starts with a master shot, which is very, very wide. And then you move into mediums and then you move into close-ups, and then you might grab some inserts. Uh, and then you might do any specialty shot like, Oh, I want a dolly shot for this line of dialogue. And then you just get that line of dialogue, you know, eight times in a row and then you move on. Um, and so whenever you get into the editing room, um, the, the editor can re- construct a scene in a number of different ways. There's so much flexibility, uh, to, to do it. Uh, the problem from my point of view is yes, they're actors, they're professionals, and they're going to bring their a game every time, whatever. Uh, they're still human beings, human beings get tired. Um, and I think if you know exactly what you want to get and how it's going to sit into the edit, just get that, just get that. And that way. The actors are fresh. They're invigorated. Every take is going to be uh, interesting. Um, and you're giving them a lot of uh, space for the rest of the day. The The worst thing in the world is to spend, you know, two hours on an emotional scene. Um, and it's like they're gassed. Like if you've never had to get emotional on, on camera, uh, I don't I don't know any other way to, 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 to put it other than it's just it's exhausting. Like imagine going to a funeral um, and then having to immediately go to a whole new funeral, like you're, there's only so much emotion to go around <laughs> and that's, you know, somewhat how it feels like you're just very tired and now you have to channel it all over again, finding out what actors can do that and which need more time and space is very important to a, a director. Um, and so for me, I, I don't want to do the whole wide unless I know I want this wide and, I'm not going to get a medium unless I know I'm going to use this medium. Um, It's just, it's inefficient. You can get more done. 
and you can just spend more time acting. Like that's it's so much more fun to watch an actor uh, do a scene than it is to have them sitting around waiting on a light to, to get set up or you know this diffusion to fly in or whatever. Like I much rather like anything that can be done in the next thirty to sixty seconds. Let's do that while I'm moving the camera. Um, if it's going to take much longer than that, it better have a really nice payoff. And to me, I'd rather get like ninety percent there and save myself 15, 20 minutes of setup, then go a hundred percent and then lose two, three other shots or, you know, another two, three takes that I could have got instead. And that's much more useful in my editing room, uh, than, you know, getting that perfect backlight, um, or rim light. Uh, I, I actually hate rim lights, but, uh, reverse key. Now that's my shit because there's not a lot to do. Once you set it up, you can kind of just start flying around. And at the most, you might bring in like some neg fill or that kind of thing. Anyway, um, so him on set, he was saying that, you know, I like to just be shooting, shooting, shooting. And this was a pretty short shoot. Um, I forget how long he had. I want to say it was like 28 working days, maybe something like that. Um, mm. But pretty fast, you know, for yeah. for this level of talent that, you know, that's walking around on set. Very impressive. Uh, the other thing he mentioned was uh, he wouldn't do it unless he got the technology right with uh, the fat, the fat suit, yeah. so to speak. And it was amazing. Like the, the, the special effects makeup work on that um, is absolutely incredible. He was like, you know, you see some of these make this makeup job where it, it's covering their mouth and comes up to their jaw. It's like, I didn't want to do any of that. That's, that's, you can just see when they talk and when they move around, it doesn't look real. Um, and you immediately eject uh, and so I worked for a while, I forget how long, but several months at least, but maybe a year or more with his makeup person to, to get that practical effect, you know, just right. And yeah, I, it looked amazing. I bought it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and Brendan was like, do you want me to put on more weight? And he's like, no, 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 don't. You're good. Bro. No, please. Just, yeah. <laughs> You're good. We'll handle it on, on our end. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I'll link both of those episodes, uh, with uh, the screenwriter and playwright as well as, uh, the one with Aronofsky, because I think they're really quick, easy, interesting listens. Um, whenever you're listening to pros really dive into their process. I just love it so much. Awesome. Yeah. Um, final thoughts, man. Fantastic film. Absolutely loved it. I hope he wins best actor. Uh, I think he completely deserves it. Uh, I don't know who he'd be going up against. I, I don't know, but, but anyway, I think it's fantastic and I'm, I'm happy that he's back and I'm happy that this exists for him. And I hope that, um, that Brendan Fraser has a long rest of his career cause, uh, it's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I, lo I loved it. I loved it. Nice. It's inspiring. Nice. Same. Okay. Well, what are you going to recommend this week? Yeah, this week I'm going to recommend, uh, the first episode of, um, on Netflix of this series called full swing. It is, I know it, it's a, it's a golf series, right? Right. It's a documentary and it follows golfers. And the first episode is an episode that follows two best friends, Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas. I used to be a golfer. Like I used to love playing golf. Um, so I know these guys, I've, I've followed these guys, but it's the way that they, um, that they create the story is really interesting because Jordan Spieth is like the top guy. He's like world number one top guy. And his friend, Justin 
is like always been beneath him, right? And has always tried to catch up to Jordan. And and what happens at the end is just so rewarding. I mean, I was sitting there watching it and I was like, like freaking <laughs> out. Um it's just so rewarding that that it's it's worth the 50 minutes uh episode to watch it even if you don't like golf if you just like stories that are real like this is a this really happened it's just so inspiring and beautiful and wonderful and and doesn't matter if you like golf or not it's just like really really cool so the first episode of full swing nice well done um yeah i am gonna recommend uh this is gonna sound so dumb uh but I'm going to recommend an air fryer. And so it does sound dumb. Yeah, You're right. Yeah, it does really dumb. I'm just kidding. I'm and just so kidding. if, uh, I don't know, I think one of the hardest things I, I mean, watching this movie, but with about a guy struggling with his weight, uh, more or less. And I don't know, I've, I have, you know, family that are basically, you know, on this level. Um, and it sucks because people have talked to them and, uh, tried to help. But at the end of the day, maybe no one can save anyone. And, and so I don't know if you're someone who I think most of America is in this place where we want to lose an extra 10 or 20 pounds and um, we'd be okay with that. And so if that's you, I have an episode, episode 98, where I discuss like how I lost 45 pounds and my three rules of fat loss or whatever. But on a more practical level, it's just for me, I'm dieting right now. I just finished a bulk that was very mid and now I'm leaning up again to give it another go. And it's uh, a lot of cooking, you know, at home. And I think this is the hard part about losing weight in America is we have an abundance of very cheap processed food. It's delicious. Um, and it's hard to get off of that. And once you do food tastes really, really good. Uh, if you cook it at home and if you use a few basic ingredients, you can get very full uh, on far fewer calories uh, and enjoy your food so much more. I don't know how many times I've ever eaten out and felt better afterwards whenever I eat like fast food. Like uh, as much as I really enjoy Taco Bell, I don't think there's ever been a single meal from Taco Bell uh, that I felt good afterwards. Like that crunch is good. The taste is good. And then I feel trashed and most eating out experiences are like that not all there's a lot of really good restaurants that will give you the right amount of portions so that you feel uh, satisfied without feeling gross um and and whatnot but i i just think man the hardest part is getting used to normal food again and once you get there like losing weight or feeling better in your body um, begins to get so, so, so much easier. And I think one of the secrets that I've had is, is not frying my food instead using something like an air fryer. I use it almost every day, you know, using your oven, the oven feels a lot more time consuming, right? It has to heat up and you just look at it and you're like, I don't know what people use that thing for. Um, and, and so one of my go-tos lately has been like a baked potato with a couple of eggs on top or, like baked chicken, but maybe instead of the, uh, in the oven, I throw it in the air fryer and it gives it that same kind of fried texture without any of the grease, um, without any of the fried fat. And so the calories are cut in like half because you're not deep frying it, um, in Crisco. And so being able to like use something like that for potatoes, now you can have French fries or whatever. Um, it gives you that same satisfied crunch and some of that same satisfying, 
um, you know, sensation without actually destroying your, your calorie count for the day. Yeah. So I, my, my recommendation is an air fryer and whole foods. I know whole foods are not exactly revolutionary in, in concept, but if you pay the piper for a couple of weeks, it starts to taste really good. A fucking carrot tastes magical once you're not having, you know, all these Cokes and sodas crammed down your, your gullet. Suddenly like, oh, I can taste the carrot again. I can taste a potato with a little olive oil. It tastes amazing. It's delicious. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm not quite on a Mediterranean diet, but I borrow some of that same ideas. Olive oil, a lot of olive oil uh, that isn't fried. That's literally just poured on top of my potato. And Todd, it's delicious. And it's I spectacular. <laughs> That's fantastic. Sorry. I'm All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, stay tuned for next week. We're going to take a look at Barbarian, the, I don't know, horror film, I suppose, uh, from Zach Kreger. And yeah, I think that's streaming somewhere right now. Uh, maybe HBO. I've already forgotten. But it is streaming on one of the main services. Uh, yeah. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, drop us a review, leave us a note. If you want us to talk about a thing, shout out once again to uh, last week, Uva, uh, requesting Jerry Maguire. Hope you dug that one, my friend. And uh, if anyone else has a request, uh, let us know. We have some interesting guests coming up in the next month or two uh, that we're excited to get to and some other stuff. Uh, yeah, a lot of fun coming down the pipe. And if you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash the whale. And our quote of the day today is from Darren Aronofsky. I'd like to do a lot of different stuff. I think it's important as a creative person to keep challenging yourself and keep doing new stuff. If you end up trying to repeat yourself, it's death. It just becomes boring and takes the passion out of it. You got to find stories and characters that you really want to hang out with. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. You were just talking about that, right? With Christian Bale. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Exactly. It's so easy to like do something and you're, you love it and you're proud of it and, and to, to go down this, this, you know, rabbit hole of trying to do that again. But you know, part of the reason why you grabbed that in the first place, because it was different from the thing before. Mm. And so just keep doing new, new things, different things, but also being aware of what your desire is. I lose that all the time. Mm. I got to say this. I lose my, I lose my direction constantly and I'm always trying to refine it and, and which is fine, but being honest with what that might be in the moment, you know, like if I just wrote a pop song, but I really don't like it or I don't want to write it again, then I'm going to work on something completely different. And all of a sudden I feel inspired again. Or if I'm going to, you know, if I just watch, you know, kind of bubblegum film, but I don't want to watch that something like that again, I'll watch an art film, you know, and all of a sudden like new synapses are connected in my brain and, and I, I, I feel something else, right. It's all about the feeling, right. So yeah, I think it's a great quote. That's really cool. And I love that because he, if you look through his, uh, his, his catalog, it's true. He's, he's not doing the same thing. Like they all might be dramas, but that's about the extent of it. I mean, there's not a lot of overlap between Black Swan and The Wrestler. Uh, those are two very different ideas, um, even though they might have a lot of the same texture and a lot of same, I don't know, uh, things underlying it in terms of technique. But they're not the same movie. It's not like, you know, he's, he's out here doing Black Swan and uh, some other psychological horror. Like, that's 
you know, I love his approach to, to stories like to go from that to Noah, this really high budget, you know, CGI biblical film and then move right to mother this like terrifying like personal also religious film like it's just really fascinating to watch his career go i mean the fountain versus the whale have absolutely no overlap other than dan aronofsky (laughs) like it's just him (laughs) he is the overlap uh yeah i i love that approach because yeah, that, I, that's such a good observation. The thing that drew you to that thing that was a success or that you really loved doing it was that it was fresh, that it was new and different from whatever you had just done. Yeah, and so I think you can apply that in so many ways, certainly in art, uh, but even in just life and work. Like if you're not scaring yourself a little bit with taking on a challenge, you maybe you don't feel alive. Maybe it's time to feel alive. Yeah, yeah. great point. Great quote. Uh, well, thank you guys so much for joining us. I had a great time. I loved this film. Hopefully you did too. Um, like Wes said, please subscribe, review us on iTunes or, or Spotify, wherever you get your, your podcast. All of it helps a lot. And let us know if there's a film that you'd like to, to see us cover. Maybe we'll cover it. Uh, but we love hearing from you either way. Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Go watch some movies.